This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 25 for February 2nd, 2006, How the Internet Works, Part 1. Steve Gibson, and a very good day to you, sir. How are you today? Hey, Leo. Great to be back with you. I want to thank you for sending me uh, that great sci-fi book. It's uh, Tell me the name, Dragon. Uh, it's called Fallen Dragon. Fallen Dragon. Yeah. Um, uh, Peter F. Hamilton is my current, my favorite sci-fi author. I've, I've read everything he has in print. And in fact, I'm rereading the last book I read of his because it's been a couple years and he's coming out with the second part of that book, which was the first one was called Pandora's Star. Anyway, I just, you know, I love sci-fi, and you can't find enough movies and TV, so I read when I'm not doing anything else. <laughs> well, I'm, as you know, I'm off on a cruise, and I just needed a book, so it, the timing couldn't have been better. I can't wait yeah, to read Fallen, it. Yeah, Fallen Dragon is a, is a really a nice when I novel. Get back. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, we're going to talk about how the Internet works in just a little bit, but uh, I've, I've got to ask you about uh, Kama Sutra, yep. which is not the uh, Indian Book of Love, but in fact a virus that is expected to hit hard on Friday the 3rd. Well, yeah. The good news is that it's been known for a couple weeks. It was for, it first. How do we know about it? January twentieth. Well, it you know people began getting it, and uh, I- interestingly enough, every instance of the virus that infects a machine goes and pokes a website that has a web counter on it. So by looking at the counter, people have been able to determine approximately how many copies there are. Some hacker and just wanted some glory, didn't he? I, I guess. I, you know, who knows? What's, what's significant about this virus, and the reason we're talking about it today, and we don't normally talk about viruses, I mean, there's a you know, hundred new ones a week, literally, is that this is a destructive virus. Most, most current viruses and worms have the goal of getting into someone's machine for the purpose of taking it over for spamming or using it as a denial of service launch you know attack launch platform or something this is the first virus or slash worm we've had for a while where it's it's deliberately destructive to the user's computer what it does is it overwrites the contents of doc files expel excel spreadsheets powerpoint presentations zips rars PDF files wow. and and MDB databases. So and it doesn't just delete them; it actually fills the file with with, with, with garbage. So it's less clear what's happened. And of course, if you didn't know this had happened and you were doing regularly regularly scheduled backups, you might overwrite your good backups with now garbage filled, um, you know, newer versions. Uh, this is so, like the old days of viruses when they they really used to all be destructive. They haven't been in a while. That's true, because, again, the, the whole new goal is to acquire these botnets and, and fleets of things wh- which the um, hackers, the malicious hackers, then rent out for, you know, in order to get, get payment. So on our show notes site, uh, on our show notes page for episode 25, I've got a link to I, – I, I sort of summarize what this is all about. It uh, it launches 30 minutes after you start your computer on the 3rd of any month. And so tomorrow, being February 3rd, will be the first 
launch event for this. It's called Kama Sutra. It's called Black Mall. Uh, it, it's actually a, a flavor of a worm slash virus that's been around for a couple years, but this latest in, incarnation of it has changed its behavior in this very malicious fashion. So there's all, it's also called NYXEM. I don't know how you pronounce that. But Symantec has a very nice free little scanner that I have a link to on our show notes page. It's it's easy to download. You don't have to register yourself or give them your email address or anything. It just it's very clean. You can grab the scanner, run it on your machine. Now Again, I don't want to overhype this at all because all AV companies have known about this for a couple of weeks since it was first discovered several weeks ago. So it's probable that you know that no one who's security conscious and is updating their AV patterns um, consistently is going to have a problem with this. But if our listeners know of people who have had problems with viruses or aren't that careful, it might be worth them telling their less security conscious friends to run this little scanner just to make sure because it is, if if it hits you, it's potentially damaging. Uh, by the way, somebody asked me, and I do the same thing, I recommend these removal tools or these uh, standalone scanners from Symantec. They said to me, well, you, never, you hate Norton antivirus. How is it you recommend Symantec's uh, removal tools. It's just clean. It's, it's I, I ran across it. I tried it today. I recommended it to both of my employees, and I sent out a, a little, a very small little email to to people who I know. You know, it wouldn't hurt them just to run this. Right. And so, and, and as I point out, there's not there's a big difference between a small one-time only program that does this and a big bloated huge program that takes over your system so right i mean you know unfortunately semantic i mean i don't want to criticize it to people who are sensitive to and love semantic but you know i like small lightweight solutions and semantic is widely regarded in the industry as having really gone the other direction it's just huge but their labs are still good their virus researchers still very good and the removal tools they write are absolutely great they do the job right yeah. Well, speaking of viruses, while we're on the topic, um, PC World just released their March 2006 results for malware detection software. One of the questions I get constantly, and I know you do too, Leo, is what's the best AV? Well, you know, that's just the, answering that question or like doing the research myself is the last thing I'm ever going to do oh. ever. It's impossible. It, it, well, it there's is. There's too many viruses, too many programs. You just need a lab to do it. Well, PC World has done a very nice job, and also on our show notes page, I have a link to their comprehensive review. Um, What I will tell people, and I'll just sort of, for the fun of it, read this off from best to least good. Mm -hmm. Their their, their best buy choice was Bitdefender 9 Hmm. Standard Edition. Which, um, which which got their top rating, a score of 92, and they called it superior. It's the number one choice for for like what they were looking for, and and you, they have charts and you know all all the details. Number two was McAfee's Virus Scan 2006. Coming in third place was Kaspersky Labs Antivirus Personal 5.0. Then F Secure Antivirus, then Symantec Norton Antivirus 2006 in fifth place. Um, Panda Software was in was in sixth. Um, Antiver Personal Edition seven. Um, something called Awil Software uh, Avast Home Edition 4.6 was in eighth place. That's a, that's a free one, Avast. A lot of people use uh, that. Yeah. Yes, yes, and that uh, it, uh, PC World said it was good and gave it a 77 rating. 
Uh, Trend Micro's PC Cillin took ninth place. Really? Below either of the free ones, Antivir and Avast. That's interesting. Yep. And wow. It's 50, and it's $50, whereas right. Bitdefender is $30. Wow. The, the, the number one ranked by PC World. And then finally, AVG's free edition was in, uh, is in last place, number 10. I'm a little disappointed they didn't uh, review my favorite Nod32, but uh, I guess they left Good it point. out. Yeah, that's, there Good are point. other antiviruses, although their top five are all well-known. I'm not a big McAfee fan. I thought that was interesting that it came in second, but yeah, it does a, it does a good job. It's just another one of those big programs, you know. Right, right. It and it and semantic. So uh, links on your show notes at grc.com/securitynow.htm to this article, so people can read the details. Right now, is it time? Yep. How Finally. the internet works. Chapter this be- one. This is the beginning of a a series we're going to do deliberately to lay a bunch of foundation. I mean, I'm going to try to really explain everything so that so so that when we talk about specific issues relating to security, of course, I'll, I'll explain it while we go along in the context of security, since that's the whole point, not just to talk about bits for bits' own sake. But I, I want to lay down a foundation for, you know, what these terms use that we've already, for the last 24 episodes, been using glibly. And most people understand them. But what I find is that when, when people write in, they, they, you know, even like, you know, network directors for major IT companies, they say, yeah, I, I pretty much know generally what all you got, what you're, what, what you guys are always talking about. But I always pick up something that had never occurred to me or a little corner that I hadn't gone into before. So So a review of the basics is good for everybody. Right. So the Internet. Um, When I first heard, and this is in um, the early 80s, I think, is when it it first really became apparent that people were talking about the Internet. You remember back then that we all had modems and they were dialing into the source or CompuServe. Genie. Yeah. Exactly. Um, this notion that we were going to network all of the machines in the world or in some large space together just seemed loony to me because from, coming from a hardware background, I thought, okay, what about the wires? Yeah, loony, you know, it seemed impossible. You know, how, how are we going to wire this all together? <laughs> and not to mention, I mean, at that time, if you had MCI mail, you couldn't send mail to somebody on Genie, and they couldn't send mail to somebody on CompuServe. They, they barely had gateways to one another, let alone talking to one another. Right. And, in, in fact, the, the, the breakthrough in, in conceptual approach was, and, and this happened in, in the mid-60s, actually, um, First at, at at MIT and also at Stanford Research uh, in in Palo Alto um, was this concept of switching from the idea of a circuit to a packet, and that was the key. You know, I don't think there's been a, a single Security Now episode where we haven't talked about packets. Packets, this packets, that's IPs and ports, and you know, and and packets and. And a packet is the is the fundamental sort of like the DNA of the internet, and it was that concept that people had that instead of actually, for example, running wires between you and everyone you want to talk to, instead you could have an architecture where your data would go through intermediate spots that were richly interconnected, and one way or another, your these these packets of data would go, get to their destination. That that was the key, and in fact, you know, and and that was the 
the the the shift in thinking that really made the internet possible you know when when i first heard oh we're going to connect all the computers together it's like wait a minute you know if you have n computers you've got n times n minus one interconnections that is if you connect every computer to every other computer and so of course the the whole the beauty of the internet is you don't need to do that at all you need to connect your computer to to some other computer or maybe to a so-called router which is connected to another one connected to another one connected to another one and with enough of those intermediate cross connections your data can reach any other machine on the planet and that's how the internet works basically it's a it's really a miracle i mean the phone system for years was a switched network where you, you had essentially a wire stretching between you and the other person on the other end. And a whole bunch of wacky copper <laughs> contact relays. Or an exactly. operator who'd said, number please. Right. So all of that was just kind of eliminated by this notion of packets. We have a brilliant idea. So overall, what what we're using today and and the only the only thing that most people feel is called version 4, IPv4, or, or Internet Protocol version 4. Um, 1, 2, and 3 were sort of starter protocols that, that didn't have much life. When we got to 4, it was a rich enough solution that you know we've had it ever since. Essentially, all the Internet that anyone knows has always been version 4. Now, for strange historical reasons, version 5 isn't ever going to happen. We're essentially going to eventually move to IPv6, version 6. Um, IPv6 isn't something that at this moment we're going to ever spend much time talking about because it just hasn't happened. One of the concerns that was driving version 6 was people were worried we were going to run out of addresses on the internet it's it's funny when the very first designers of this started up they they said i mean th- they had no concept that that people would be walking around with computers in their pocket that were part of some global network which is of course what we have today they were envisioning maybe national size networks of of like universities or major corporations, when they laid out a 32-bit address, um, their idea was that the top byte, the first byte of the address, would be the network number. That is essentially the the location number, and the other 24 bits of the 32-bit address would be the machine at that location. So like a university would be three and and then followed by which machine at that university and a different university would 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 be four dot something so that was the original concept was that they had these the idea of huge local networks that were then able to to reach across to another different local network using this internet protocol where the first number was which other network you wanted to go to there was you know nothing like what we have today was envisioned and so it's it's really something of a miracle that that something that was designed so opportunistically 20 years ago um, even a little more than that, actually, has survived as well as it has. So what IPv6 will do is it expands that that 32-bit IP address that we'll talk about here in a second uh, in, in great detail. It expands that 32-bit IP address to 128 bits. 
Well, 32 bits is 4,294,967,296. You can see why they thought that was a lot. Well, exactly. Even though they weren't even going to use it that way. They were just going to use the, the, the first byte, which can be 0 through 255, as like which big mega node somewhere in the country the packets should all go to then they'd go to a, a particular machine at that university or corporation so we have you know 4.3 almost billion ips currently well 28 bits for addressing which is what ipv6 gives us is really out of control that's 3.4 times 10 to the 38th power that's 340 Billion, 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 billion <laughs> IPs. So um, it's that should clear, be enough at least until we conquer a few more galaxies. Uh, I think. Yeah, I, I don't. We don't have to worry about that. The problem is that it's not easily compatible with IPv4. The problem that IPv6 is having is that. You know, the manufacturers who are making the routers, I mean, even, for example, the, the PC manufacturers are supporting version 6. No, no one's using it yet. Uh, we, you know, Windows Server 2003 and, and, and XP can do IPv6, but you can't get it anywhere. I mean, there's nowhere to, there's nowhere to plug it in. To, to get version six. Now, I mean, that's not strictly true. There are university environments um, which are sort of using it experimentally. And in fact, wh- what's happened is that in order to straddle the address change, IPv4, our little 32 bits, sort of tucks itself in one little corner of IPv6 so that you're able to transport IP version 4 data across an IP version 6 network. It doesn't get confused and lost. You are able to do it. But for all intents and purposes, it just hasn't happened yet. So uh, is it just going to take so much to implement that it will never happen? Or are people moving in that direction? I mean, what... With her, well, with her IPv6. What's, what's happened has been really interesting, and that is that the, the NAT router technology that we talk about so much because it's such great security for, for typical home users. You know, home users are, are sharing many IPs in their home behind a single IP at their ISP. Um, that is, a, a single public IP. Um, so what... That, that's a perfect example of what's happened. If it weren't for NAT router technology that basically allows many machines to share a single public IP, we really would be in trouble already with IP space depletion. But NAT routers happened, and they've just, they're just a good thing for everybody. Corporations are using them. There are even some ISPs that are using NAT routers and putting all their customers behind a big NAT router because it, 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 it really works very well, not perfectly, but very well as most you know, home users know. And so the, 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 the prevalence and birth of NAT routing technology has hugely reduced the pressure on the move to IPv6. Now, IPv6 is more than just bigger IP numbers, more than just this move from 32-bit IPs to 128-bit. It does offer also some inherent... Um, what's called link level security or ip level security where you're able to encrypt your your endpoint to endpoint connection 
using the protocol rather than having to lay it on separately as as we've been talking about before you know during all of our talk about vpn so there are some other features which are beneficial but they're just not driving forces and now that there's no big rush to um, to ipv6 due to the fact that we're not about to run out of ips um it's really not clear when we're going to make the move. It, it's the kind of thing, you know, it's expensive to do. People have to remove equipment. And, you know, for example, all of the NAT routers that we have installed right now are IPv4. They're not IPv6. Probably the same is true with the cable modems, although I'm less sure of that. So my point is that we're talking about a massive obsolescence when we finally do move. It's sort of like, you know, how, how the FCC has been trying to push us to HDTV and ultimately they're going to be turning off the NTSC over the air to force those last people who've got, you know, air, you know rabbit ears sticking right. out of their, their, their TV to finally move. <laughs> if, you, if, you, um, if you don't do it, uh, you know, if you don't turn it off, nobody's going to change, frankly. Right. But no matter what, the, the, the essence of the Internet are these things called packets. Now, a packet is nothing but a block of data. So the first thing, I mean, just in terms of demystification, a packet is nothing but just a, a, a blob of, of binary bits. The, the, the Internet protocol defines the layout of these packets. And the um at the at 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 the sort of like like the outer layer you've got a source ip and a destination ip which as we've talked about are 32 bits uniquely specifying where this machine where this packet came from on the internet and where it's going to now in the original sort of pre-nat version of the internet Packets actually did contain the IP address of the machine. We know that's no longer true because, for example, if, well, for example, right now, Leo, you and I are conversing over VOIP. Both of us are behind NAT routers. It happens that my computer is is the IP address 10.0.0.10. Yours is probably 192.168.0.4 mm-hmm. or 1 or something. Right. So, so those are both private IPs that are that are non-routable so the 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 packets which are flowing between us across the internet do not identify our machines they identify our NAT routers although so, that is a, a private or not a private a public address assigned to us by our internet service provider I mean it's a real address correct yeah but but I guess the the but there's the one point per person that, instead of one per computer Exactly. Right. And it's when the packet arrives at our router that the router then does sort of the next level of job of figuring out which machine behind it has a has an established connection with the other endpoint. And so it then routes it inside of our local area network to the proper machine. So it's not the case that it's not the case any longer that IP addresses uniquely identify machines. They identify sort of like the public endpoint and at that point it the network may go private as it does when it crosses into a NAT router even many universities are are doing this so you know people have asked when they're concerned about file sharing and and you know NSA spying and 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 how it is that their their IP addresses can be tracked down to them it's certainly the case that an IP address owned by an end user 
can be identified you know like by their household but once it goes into your nat router unless the router is logging specific ip assignments behind it and most of them typically don't but for example universities and isps do um, unless there was that there's really no way to to for anyone to trace it beyond when the ip stops being public and switches in into being a private ip there's no way to know where it goes People are using something called DHCP to assign those addresses. I do remember in the earliest days of these routers, people would sometimes use static IP addressing and buy five Internet addresses and just use the router to kind of bridge almost as a hub, really, I guess. Well, and yes, and in fact, the, the earlier days of DSL, you, you would be able to get from your phone company, you, you could get a DSL network with eight IPs, right. and you'd actually have eight physical public IPs as opposed to just one. But again, because they're so scarce, it's really increasingly hard to do that. And in fact, even people like myself, where I've got a, a corporate network, you have to now fill out when, 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 and I, did, I did, had to do this less than a year ago, what they call an IP justification <laughs> sheet, which they have on file in case they need to explain wh- why they need the IP space right. they have. I mean, right. it's, it's really becoming a, a, a scarce resource. And we're not running out, but, but you know, there's already people being more responsible about the way these IPs are being handed out. Do you think we'll ever see IPv6 implemented? Well, I mean, it, it's it's scattered around. You can connect equipment together, and it does work. But it just, you know, in, in order for it to work from endpoint to endpoint, every single piece of equipment has to be IV, IPv6 compatible along the way. And we're, you know, we're a long way from being there. It's just, I don't, I really would be surprised if it happens. We've figured out a way around it. Right. Yeah. Right. So, okay, so so we've got we have packets which have a source IP and a destination IP. The other thing that that, that a packet, a standard internet protocol packet, also has is is what's called a a protocol number. Now that's an eight bit byte that tells the system or routers, basically anyone handling this packet what type of packet it is. And you know we've talked about ICMP, you know pings. Um, and and TCP and UDP. Well, all all those things are are just different bytes. ICMP happens to be a type one, and uh, TCP is a type six, and UDP is a type seventeen. So so the only thing that really differentiates these these sort of these otherwise generic internet protocol packets is this one byte up at the front of the packet that says the rest of me is this type and so that's how equipment that is that is having to deal with this knows what to do with it um icmp is sort of used for for plumbing maintenance if if links go down that is between two points you're no longer able to ping the other endpoint it's used by sort of the mechanics of the internet sort of not as much for 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 moving actual data but for sort of managing the transport of of the the data and and being able to to check which equipment's online and for, for, you know for for various sort of supervisory functions um one of the other interesting things that that's in every internet packet is called the, is called the time to live or the TTL. What, um, what what you have 
with a whole bunch of routers all linked to each other. And we'll talk about how that works in a second. What you have is basically one router passing the packet to another router that then passes it to another and so on until it finally reaches its, its destination. Well, there is the possibility for, for so-called router loops where, for example, if one router were misconfigured, it might send the packet, instead of sort of sending it further towards its destination, it might send it upstream by mistake to a different router, which would then receive it, and just like it does any other packet, send it back towards its destination. Well, due to misconfiguration, you could end up with, with loops between routers so that one poor packet just sits there being handed off in a circle, never never being able to reach its destination due to a misconfiguration. So the original designers recognized the danger of this, and so they put a time to live in each packet. It's even though it says time, it's really not about time, it's about router handoffs. It's it, it's a counter. And so systems will start off setting the time to live for example to 64 or 128 or or, or some some semi-arbitrary value whatever they're configured to sort of launch packets out of themselves at and every time a router receives a new packet it decrements that time to live counter by one. As long as it doesn't go to zero, it, cons it, it considers that the packet has not expired. And so it looks at the destination IP, figures out which of its many multiple connections are is is like going to take that packet closer to its destination. And so it sends it on out of its out of itself to another to, to the next router in the chain that router receives the packet again decrements that packet that 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 TTL by one and again as long as it still has some life left in it literally as long as that counter hasn't hit zero it forwards it again so the beauty of this approach is that if a packet ever got stuck in in, in a router loop those routers passing it back and forth by mistake among themselves would each be decrementing this TTL toward zero. Finally, one of the routers, sort of like playing hot potato, one of the routers would decrement it from one to zero, and that, at that point the packet is said to have, to have expired. What the router then does is it, because this is like abnormal behavior, you don't want your packets obviously to be expiring, um, it will take the packet and uh, the sort of the, the first chunk of the packet and wrap that in one of our what we were talking about before an ICMP message called um, expired it wraps it in an ICMP time expired message and sends it back to the IP that apparently put that packet onto the internet just to inform the sender that hey we don't know why but we couldn't get your packet all the way to to its destination before it expired. Well, one of the well, the really interesting things that was happening uh, actually only a few years ago is that systems were not configured with the present and growing size of the internet in mind. There were some computers, in fact, the early Windows machines, that would set their their packets TTLs, their time to live, to 32. Well, back then, 20 years ago, 
32 was enough because that what, what that would mean is that if you were sending it from a, a, a source location to a destination you could go through 32 router handoffs before reaching the destination well the internet not being that big sort of in terms of like the diameter of the routing the, the so-called routing diameter of the internet you would be able to get it there but as ISPs became more internally complex as more ISPs were, were born and they hooked their routers to upstream routers what happened was the the so-called routing diameter of the internet grew to the point that it became larger than 32 routers and what that meant was that there were some people who were using earlier versions of Windows or other operating systems that were still using a, a, a value a starting value of this time to live that was too low they were unable to reach other locations their packets would die just I mean, even with no routing problems at all just you know 32 hops and they hadn't quite gotten to their destination and that the final router would say uh, sorry and send it back to the person who originally put that onto the internet saying this thing died in transit so one of the things that we've seen has happened um, recently is that as windows and other operating systems have been ha have been run through their versions this TTL has been bumped up to 64 and then typically to 128 sometimes up to its maximum value of 255 which you know if we ever get more than 255 routers between two points we're really in trouble because no data will ever be able to get from from one end to the other <laughs> isn't that cool it's I, I really like the elegance of the solution and I is it how much of it is planned ahead? How much of it is in response to problems as they come up? That That's one of the things that is shocking, is that so much of this was done right the first time. I mean, even though these guys had no idea where this was headed, I mean... 25 years ago you couldn't have imagined this and you know even so they laid down these fundamental protocols and got it right the first time now one really cool application of this of this packet expiring is something that that many people who've messed with um, networking for a while have used and may not have really appreciated what was going on and that's called the trace route because when a packet expires on its way to its destination. Remember I said that the, the router where it expired, the router that decremented that packet's time to live from one down to zero, it wraps the packet in a little ICMP message and sends it back to the sender. Well, that means that the packet is being sent from that router, from that router's IP, back to the sender. So the, the, the neat engineers who thought up all this stuff in the beginning, they said, hey, what if we wanted to know the route that our packets are taking as they go from one router to the next across the Internet? How could we determine that? Well, that what they realized was, hey, we could deliberately emit packets with shorter time-to-lives so that on purpose they die before they get to their destination. So what the, the so-called trace route command does is it sends the first packet towards its destination. Like say you were trace routing to Microsoft.com. It would, it would address the packet with the IP address of Microsoft.com, but only put the t set the time to live on purpose to one. 
So the first router that receives it decrements it to zero and goes, whoa, this must be an old packet. Well, it's, it's, so it, it sends a time-exceeded message back to the sender with its IP. So we display that, and we now know the IP of the first router on our path towards Microsoft. Then we send out a packet with a, with a time to live of two. Well, it goes past the first router, which decrements its time to one, gets to the second router, which decrements its time to live to zero, and now that sends it back to us. So by repeating that process until we finally reach Microsoft.com, we end up with an, a, a very elegant little listing of every router between us and our destination. And of course, that's useful for all kinds of problems. And in fact, you, you can, you can, it, it can be used for many um, internet diagnostics purposes. Okay, now the last thing I want to cover in this part one is is about routers. You know, we talked about how packets move from router to router. The question is, how do routers know where to send it to? And this is, I think, another one of this the the core bits of genius of the original designers of this thing, of of the whole technology. If IPs were assigned at random so that any IP could belong to anyone, routers would have a horrible problem. They would literally have to have a four billion long table <laughs> okay <laughs> that had everybody's IP and which interface uh, which of their interfaces is is connected one way or another mm-hmm. eventually to that user. Well, the internet it's, wouldn't work if you had to do that. No, it just wouldn't work. Yeah. So in, instead, the the IP space, the the, the this thirty two bit IP is a is inherently a hierarchical addressing system. Now we're very familiar with hierarchical addressing systems because, for example, that's how postal mail is routed around the United States. You know, my my mailman doesn't know where Leo lives, but he knows where, you know, the town you live in right, is. Right. Maybe, you know, just by using zip code, for example. Well, and they're hierarchical, and, too, aren't they? Well, I mean, exactly. mine is California or, or is the West Coast, I guess. And, well, I guess, I guess it's sort of linear, but, but, but you're right. It certainly gives you a, 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 a perfect starting point. Mm-hmm. And so, so, for example, if we, if we think of addresses as in, like, which state in the United States, then which town in the state, and then which, which uh, street in the town, and then which number on the street. You know, there's a hierarchy of, of state, town, street, number, which is almost exactly mirrors the way internet protocol works so for example you know um there might be a laguna hills florida and there certainly is a laguna hills california because they are in different states they're not confused so so the way the internet protocol works is is very similar to this the when an isp is given an allocation of ip addresses it it gets a certain um, number of sort of like high octets, like for example, you know, cable modems for a long time tended to be twenty four dot, and I think now that they a lot a lot, a lot of them are in the sixty eight dot and sixty seven dot, meaning that it's you know twenty four dot x dot y dot z, whatever the other numbers are. So the idea was that a, a given 
a large cable modem ISP would would get all of the addresses that start with 24 dot. So what that means is that some router, you know, at the other side of the world, all it has to know is that any any IP address beginning with 24 dot is sort of in that direction. It just sort of all it has to know is kind of over there, right. you know. If you know, if you imagine that it had four interfaces: north, south, east, west, going to other routers to the north of it, to the south of it, to the east and the and the west of it, then its job would be to get an IP packet, look at the destination IP, and say, and and, and look up in a much shorter table. Now it's it's so-called routing table. If it had an entry that began with twenty-four. It would just say, "Oh, twenty-four, you know, dot star." Essentially, you know, to use the terminology of like of, of a wild card, anything beginning with twenty-four, I send west, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. any four, and anything beginning with four, I send north, mm-hmm. and anything mm-hmm. beginning with you know something else, I send in a different direction. So it, it's actually the 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 excruciating detail level is a little more complex than that but that's the the the, the whole concept of routing that makes this whole global network function is it routing t- uh, routers talk to each other which is Another very complex topic I think we'll probably never get to. You're using something called BGP, Border Gateway Protocol, um, and a couple of other protocols. They, they're able to share with, e- with their neighbors the IPs that they know about and, and the connectedness of their other interfaces so that their neighbors know what packets to send to them. But basically, this forms a big grid of, of routers, each that only have to know when they receive a packet which interface that it that they're connected to they should they, they should send that out of in order to move it in the direction it's going to so in our example where we had a packet that was addressed to 24 dot something it would it would march across the globe from router to router that is just looking at the packet going whew all i have to do is worry about this 24 that goes out my you know interface number 3 and the next router gets it and says, oh, for me, that's my interface number two. And so the packet moves until it gets to the ISP. The ISP then knows not necessarily about any um, anything else on the Internet, but it knows within its own network how to further subdivide that down. Just like a letter that is received by the post office in a city, now the people in the post office know which carrier to to stick it in because they figure out you know a, a given postal carrier has a certain neighborhood it is all these streets so, so so similarly once the packet gets into the ISP it only has to then further segregate it to get it down into the neighborhood further segregate it to get it down into a smaller block and ultimately get it to the destination where it, it, it's aimed at again very slick yeah, I mean, and the idea that they, that this thing, this system, has hung together as well as it has, I, I mean, I'm in awe of, well, of, of the people who did this. And no one contemplated, I'm sure, the size and scope of it. I mean, it's exploded beyond anybody's wildest dreams. Right. Now, one of the things that has happened is that that the the there are classes of networks, it's worth mentioning, um, a a class A network is the largest type of network, and that would be all 
it's sort of like the original concept I've talked about where the first byte was a location and the other 24 bits of the 32-bit address were the, 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 the machine within that, that location's network. That's a class A network where, where you have a, basically a network of, of a single byte at the top and then, and then what, Six, um, I'm sorry, 24 bits gives you 16.777 million machines within that. And there are ISPs that own, I mean, many ISPs actually own whole big class A networks. And then they further subdivide that within their infrastructure. A class B network has the top two bytes that specify it, and then 16 bits below specify which machine within that network. And the smallest formal type network is a so-called class C, where the top three bytes specify which one, which network it is, and the lower byte of eight bits specifies which one of, of 250 plus machines fit within its network. So, so basically, by by having a hierarchy of these network classes, which have actually become a little more loose um, as as the internet has evolved, we're able to to address a packet from one location to another anywhere on the globe, and most of the time, when everything's working right, it gets there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. Steve, I think so we need to take a break and uh, and come back next week. <laughs> yep, let's do that, Leo. I'm digesting, um, and I don't mean lunch. That uh, there's a lot to understand there. Although I have to say, um, it's just it's really kind of fun to look at it because it's such a beautiful, elegant system, and it works yeah. so well. We've talked on the show before about vulnerabilities, and there certainly are vulnerabilities to this system. But yet, day in day out, we use it. We don't think about it, and it works. Well, and it's worth also talking about um, redundancy. I've I, I mentioned that these routers are able to communicate with each other in order to talk about what routes they're able to offer to other routers. One of the beauties of this rich interconnectivity among routers is that if a router goes down or it's being rebooted because you know its firmware needs to be updated or it, it, it's, it's being upgraded or something – the the beauty of this system is the the dialogue between routers allows them to determine when a router is gone and then they can choose a not sort of like a a not my first choice but this is the only (laughs) way i have of sending this packet on so the internet is also sort of self-healing there was always the the kind of story although it turns out not to be true that it was built to survive an atomic attack that's not really the case no, that, that was sort of an apocryphal story yeah. that, that, that sprung up. Um, but I suppose but what, it would, because it would route around, you know, big losses like that. Yeah, uh, certainly, though, where our major arteries are located is well known. There, there's something called May West and May East, which are major interconnection points. And if bad people, you know, wanted to hurt us, all they have to do is knock out those two major interchanges right. and, and we'd be in trouble. But but overall, the architecture, this notion of just of breaking everything, from, instead of having wires to everything, just have wires to your neighbors and and send these little packets of data, you know, um, granulate what you're sending into packets and just drop them on the network and have them all sort of autonomously get themselves to where they're going. It's just a, it's a very robust and a fantastic system. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, we'll talk next week uh, about uh, part two of uh, how the Internet works. And then this is all kind of the foundation for a lot of the security stuff we're going to talk about uh, in weeks to come, I know. Right. Because, for example, when we understand how it works, we can better understand what happens when it doesn't work and what attacks are possible to deliberately break from working. Yes. Mm. All right. We won't tell the terrorists too much. They, they already know, probably. Yeah. If you want more information about this, follow up on the show notes at Steve's website, grc.com slash securitynow.htm. Of course, GRC is the great Gibson Research Corporation. Steve's the creator of SpinRight, the ultimate disk recovery and maintenance tool. I wouldn't run a, a machine without it. Um, uh, I have my SpinRight 6 disk by me at all times, and I <laughs> encourage you to do the same. And we do thank our friends at America Online for providing us with the bandwidth uh, for this show, uh, we couldn't do it without them. You can listen to the show on their AOL podcast channel or, uh, of course, download it through our RSS feeds, as I'm sure many of you do. We'll see you next Thursday for another fascinating edition of How the Internet Works on Security Now. Thanks, Steve. My pleasure, Leo. See you next time. Always.